We turn this morning to Romans chapter 2. We are in chapter 2 today, Romans chapter 2, and we'll be attempting to take a vast sweep of the chapter, see how we will do with that. But we're going to begin by reading the first 11 verses, Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment... On another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the goodness of God, God's kindness, is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. We were considering, for the most part, in the last half of Romans chapter 1, the moral darkness of the Gentile heathen world, how that in the clear face of God's revelation, with God's many evidences, they rejected that light, they suppressed the truth of God, they exchanged the glory of God for a lie, and so descended, plunged as it were, into gross moral darkness. And here in Romans chapter 2, Paul shifts focus from the Gentiles, the heathen world, steeped in their depravity and rebelling against God, to the self-righteous moralists, those who regard themselves as being morally superior to others, they consider to be outright sinners. And he shows that far from being morally better than those they look down upon, They're in fact no different from them when it comes to the issue of sin. Whether in heart or in actual deeds, they're guilty of the very things on account of which others come under the wrath of God. And so we see from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to verse 32, right up to Romans chapter 2, the reality of sin at work in both Jews and Gentiles in the religious moralists as well as the ungodly. Having shown in Romans 1 that the Gentile pagan world is under the wrath of God for their rejection of God, Paul in Romans chapter 2 demonstrates that the self-righteous moralists are as much guilty before God and are likewise under the wrath of God. He says here in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, he states God's incriminating charge against the self-righteous. We read, 
Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now it's important for us to clarify precisely what Paul means by the word judge because quite often there are those who will take a verse like this as well as Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 to make the point that one should never under any circumstance judge another. So that rebuking or censoring someone for sin, for some wrong they have done, is readily seen and classified as judging. And so you'll hear them say, well, you're judging, don't judge. The Bible says don't judge. Well, nothing could be further from the truth because our Lord Jesus, in Matthew 7, 15 and 16, instructs us to be discerning of false prophets. Elsewhere, the Word of God tells us that we are to watch out for certain people and have no company with them. And clearly, if we are going to be spiritually discerning as our Lord Jesus commands us, and if we are going to know the true from the false, those we should associate with and those we should not, then that will certainly require some measure of judging. What we should never engage in, however, is judgmentalism. And we're talking two separate things here. To judge is different from being judgmental. And this is really what the Word of God is decrying here in Romans 2, verses 1 and 2. Judgmentalism is the kind of attitude whereby one is given to focusing on the sins and failings of others with an attitude of spiritual superiority, not realizing one's own sins. It is that tendency of self-righteously citing, correcting, and even condemning the sins of others while excusing the sins that are in one's own life. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of judging. To judge is to be censorious. It is to condemn others of their sins while one is guilty of doing the very same things. And this was the very attitude our Lord Jesus denounced in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, when he declared, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eyes, your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. But what are the identifying marks of the self-righteous? Those who would be judgmental, how can we identify those who are self-righteous? And perhaps a more pertinent question is, how can we tell if we ourselves are not self-righteous? And as we examine our text this morning, we see, first of all, a feature of the self-righteous is this, that they live a double standard. They live by a double standard. While they censor the sins of others, they condone those very sins in their own lives. In effect, they're what the Bible terms hypocrites. And that is precisely the case as presented here in verse 1. As verse 1 says, notice verse 1, they pass judgment on others even as they practice the very things they condemn in others. Verses 21 to 23, Paul presents examples of this kind of double standard which is self-righteous practice. 
Well, here's what Paul says, verse 21. They teach others, yet they do not teach themselves. They open the word of God to others, yet they themselves do not come under the subjection. They do not come in subjection to the authority of the word of God. They preach against stealing, yet they themselves steal. They speak against adultery, yet commit adultery. They detest idols, Paul says, while robbing idols. They they pride themselves in the law, yet displease and honor God by their disobedience to the law. And so leading a hypocritical double standard life is one identifying feature of the self-righteous. And the question for us this morning is a very pertinent question, a very important question. The question is this. In what way might you and I be leading a double life, living by a double standard? That's a very important question, and it's a very serious one. It's a very important question for us to consider, beloved, because the truth is, if not for the grace of God, listen, if not for the grace of God, you and I could well be hypocrites without even realizing it. Yes, we could well be what the late um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones described as unconscious hypocrites. And you ask the question, how does that work? How can we become hypocrites unconsciously? You see, that happens when we have such superficial view of sin that we readily excuse what we consider to be not-so-bad sins. Yet in his Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus made it clear, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount made it very clear that sin is not merely a matter of outward external conduct, but rather sin is essentially a matter of the inward attitude and disposition of the heart. For example... Here, Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 and 28 He declared, you have heard it said, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's a person who says, no, 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 I'm a decent, morally upright person. I'm a committed Christian. I don't do those things. And yet the word of God is saying that even if we don't do those very things, the physical act, yet the thought is as good as the actual crime itself. He says we're guilty of adultery. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, he suggested, that is our Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, he suggested that one might not be guilty, listen, one might not be guilty of physical murder, one might not be guilty of taking up a weapon, of eliminating a person, taking that person's life, yet by harboring anger in one's heart, unresolved bitter anger in one's heart, one bears the guilt of murder. That's scary. That's frightening. That's coming from our Lord Jesus. Here he says, But I say to you, everyone who is angry without, with his brother without a cause shall be guilty of hellfire. He lumps that with murder. In fact, the apostle John explicitly taught in 1 John 3 verse 15. Here's what the apostle John said. He said this, Everyone who hates his brother 
is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So here's how we can condemn others while we ourselves are doing the very same things. We might not be guilty of the physical act, yet we are guilty of the spirit of the particular sin, the particular crime, and the word of God says even the very thought, entertaining it, harboring it, we are just as guilty. And we have to watch it, my friends, of our condemning the sins of others while we condone what we term not-so-bad sins, what some have termed respectable sins. It's very subtle. It can come upon us without even realizing it. We can be unconscious hypocrites at heart. And I'm talking about myself as well. It goes for all of us. A second feature of the self-righteous is this. They have misguided notions of God's judgment. Look at verse 3. They have misguided notions of God's judgment. Here's what Paul says. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Underline or circle that word, suppose. Paul asks a question. He says, do you suppose, and the Greek word there, suppose, means to reckon or consider. And here in this context, the idea is that the self-righteous are given to erroneous surmisings and assumptions about God's judgment. Assumptions which lead them to conclude that they'll never have a reckoning with God for their sins. Do you know people like that? You say, are you prepared for judgment? And the idea of judgment is foreign to them. Why? Because they are steeped in their self-righteousness and they have superficial views of sin. They have superficial views of God and his judgment. And hence, they are supposing, they are presuming, they are surmising erroneously and misguidedly as to who God is. And you ask yourself the question, how do they arrive at such conclusion concerning God's judgment? The fact that they'll escape God's judgment. And here's how they do it. They get there, you see, as they compare themselves, their lives, with those they consider to be utterly ungodly. There are some people who do that, you know. They ensconce themselves complacently in the thought that they are okay with God because as they match their lives to others, they consider to be carnal, to be sinful, they're ungodly. They said, at least my life is better than theirs, so I must be all right with God. That's what Paul is talking about here. And they imagine that they can get away with condemning others for their sins while participating in sinful deeds themselves. Because their sins are not as bad as the sins of others. They look at what they imagine to be the vast extent of their goodness and what they have done. And they reason that while they indulge, yes, while they indulge in some kinds of sins, yet because their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, then God will somehow give them a pass. So they imagine that by some kind of trade-off, as it were, God will overlook their sins. I want to say this, and you know this very well, it bears repeating, particularly for those who might not take this very seriously, that God does not grade, God does not judge us on the curve. Because when God is going to judge, and when we stand before God in judgment, God is not going to compare us with that person or that person. God is going to compare us with the absolute standard of righteousness in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, how do we compare with that righteousness? 
The self-righteous live by a double standard. They have misguided notions regarding the judgment of God. Here's a third feature of those who are self-righteous. Look at verse 4. The self-righteous, notice, presume on the grace of God. The self-righteous presume on the grace of God. It's right there in verse 4. Here's what he says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Presumption. They're presuming on the grace of God. That's why they can ensconce themselves in their self-righteousness and feel good about themselves. And implied here in verse 4 is... One of the most blinding, deceptive ideas that the self-righteous often have concerning God, which is this, that God is too loving and gracious a God as to punish sin. That good and loving a God as he is, God will never send anyone to hell, at least not them. And especially when things are going well for them materially. They're thriving, they're prospering in life. They presume on the grace of God, concluding that because God has been so good to them, God has blessed them with a wonderful family, God has blessed them with a good job, they're bringing in a very hefty income. It therefore means that they are right with God, that God is happy with them, that God is pleased with them. How many of you have had the experience, you're talking to an unsaved person, they say, listen, you can't tell me about God. God has blessed me so much. He has done so much for me. He has given me such a wonderful family. And you know what? They rest in that, equating it with the saving favor of God. Let me tell you, wicked people can be very wealthy. In fact, Psalm 73, the psalmist talks, the psalmist Asaph, in fact, concludes that he almost lost his faith when he contemplated this because he says, here am I serving God, and yet I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a godly person serving God, and yet he, look at that wicked man, he's prospering, he doesn't have pain, he, in his death he dies comfortably at ease like a baby. Here's the truth, beloved. The truth is this. You know this very well. Material prosperity is no necessary indicator that one is right with God. One could be blessed by God with a wonderful family, with lots of money, with large houses, yachts, and go straight to hell. And so their misguided, self-righteous pride, the self-righteous equate temporal, physical blessings with the the saving favor of God. And this explains why considering themselves better than others, they therefore what? Look down on others. They presume on the grace of God, failing to understand that their experience of God's kindness, of God's forbearance, of God's Patience is designed not to induce them to complacency, but to move them to repentance. Because look, listen to what Paul says. Not knowing, you're presuming on the grace of God, the goodness of God, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. Remember what the psalmist says? He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? He said, I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Listen. God is blessing a person. Let not that person think that everything is okay with his or her soul. God is oftentimes, many times, simply good, even to the unconverted. Why? Because he wants, through his goodness, to lead them to repentance. Not only is it that the self-righteous live by a double standard, 
have misguided notions regarding the judgment of God, presume on the grace of God, but here's a fourth characteristic feature of the self-righteous. It is this, they have hard, calloused hearts. They have hard, calloused hearts. Look at verse 5. Because as he continues to address the self-righteous moralist, Paul says there in verse 5, he says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, some of the hardest people to reach with the gospel is not, are not the out-and-out wretched sinners. I put it like that. You know what I mean. It is far easier to deal with a person who is steeped in sin, who knows them, who know themselves to be ungodly, than it is to deal with a person who is smug, complacent, and self-satisfied with their religiosity. Very hard to reach. And Paul describes them here. He says, your heart is hard. Your heart is impenitent. My friends, if you are the kind of person who is settled in your sense of personal goodness, who is complacent in your religiosity, in how pious, in how godly you are, in how morally upright and better you are than others, according to the diagnosis of God's word. Look at verse 5 again. The word of God says, you have, and I think I might make up this one, You have sclerosis of the heart. You have a heart that's hard. You have a heart impenitent. You have a heart that is stubborn, is what the word of God is saying. And the word of God suggests here in verse 5 that with every passing moment, with every passing day, with every passing year, you're refusing to repent. You're refusing to humble yourself, to come to God as a lost sinner, humbly before God, Asking Christ to save you is only increasing, is only aggravating your guilt and your condemnation before a righteous and holy God. That's what the word of God is saying. Let me say this. You do more to provoke God by your religiosity, by your personal goodness than anything else. God, if I might use the word of Jonathan Edwards, is dreadfully provoked. He's dreadfully and greatly provoked by the self-righteous. You know why? Because the self-righteous, what they do, they fly as it were in the face of God's grace and in the provision of a free salvation that comes to lost, guilty, humble sinners in Jesus Christ. Someone as well said this, the main dangers lawlessness brings are a distorted view of God and bondage to the flesh. But the main danger religion brings is self-deception resulting in increased spiritual blindness. Lawlessness, the man who is living ungodly, he incurs bondage to the flesh. But the main danger of the self-righteous, the work this man is saying, the main danger is this. It brings self-deception resulting in increased spiritual blindness. It's a dreadful thing to be steeped in one's religiosity, thinking that one is so good that one is above others. That's what the word of God is condemning here. And God is saying that there is coming a day when his wrath is going to be unleashed. His wrath is going to be unleashed, not just on the so-called out-and-out sinner, but on those who presumptuously regard themselves as being righteous to the point they consider themselves better than others. My friends, are you one of those? 
Let's ask this question, in whom or in what are you trusting? You see, that's the crux of the matter. Are you trusting in how good you are? Are you having some secret, subtle sense that somehow you are good in the eyes of God? Because I tell you, the word of God says we are not. The word of God says, apart from Christ, apart from the saving grace of God in Christ, we are wretched, we are filthy, we are polluted, we are lost, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And here's the, here's the thing. The only glory, the only boast you and I can have is in the Lord Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Are you trusting in how good you are, in all the good you have done? Or are you looking away from all of these vain securities to that sure and only source of saving favor with God, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As the question is often asked, if God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? You stood there before God on the day of judgment, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? Let me tell you, the only thing, my friends, we could say, the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. The Lord Jesus and his grace. You see, that's the crux of the matter. But let's look secondly at the judgment of God and the self-righteous. We have looked at the features of the self-righteous. Let's consider the judgment of God on the self-righteous. The first thing I want us to note from this passage is the certainty of God's judgment. The certainty of God's judgment. And that their judgment, that is the judgment of sinners, of the self-righteous, is a certainty. is made clear in verse 2. In verse 2, Paul asserts, here's what Paul says. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The certainty of God's judgment. Where do we see that in the text? Notice what Paul says, we know. And he uses a strong word in the Greek, oida. It is a word which suggests what? Somewhat of what we would call perfect knowledge. He says, it's like you say, we know it to the max. The verb is in the perfect tense, underscoring the absolute abiding certainty of this judgment. Observe how Paul in verse 5 speaks of the certainty. Notice how he speaks with certainty of the day of God's wrath. He speaks, notice in verse 16, he says this, the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He uses a future tense. Paul does not use conjectural language. He does not use tentative language. He uses the language of certainty. God will judge. We know, he says, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. In fact, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, Paul says there that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And here's what Paul says, and of this that is, of this judgment, he has given assurance to all men in that he raised them from the dead. Listen, God's judgment is a certainty. One of these days, every single one of us will stand before the judgment bar of God. For we must all, Paul says, First, Second Corinthians 5 verse 9, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone might receive the things done in his body according to whether it be good or bad. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Listen, judgment is a certainty. God's judgment is more sure than you are sitting here this morning. Paul speaks, first of all, then, of the certainty of God's judgment. Notice, secondly, Paul speaks of the integrity of God's judgment. 
the integrity of God's judgment. Notice what he says here in the B part of verse 2. Paul says that the judgment of God rightly falls. Literally, in the Greek, the text read, and the King James Version is right on target, the judgment of God is according to truth. The truth here is God's absolute standard of truth, not the world's standard of truth, which is relative, in which this person has his truth, that person has her truth. No, there's one absolute standard of truth, which is God's truth. Notice in verse 16 that the judgment of God is according to truth in as much as it is or will be according to the gospel. How is God going to judge us? He's going to judge us on the basis of truth found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the truth of the gospel? The truth of the gospel is that outside of Jesus Christ, no one can be saved. If we go before the judgment seat of Christ and we say how religious we were, how we serve this God, Allah, or we serve that God, whatever, here's the point. According to the truth of the gospel, one is going to be barred from the presence of God. We are not saved by our sincerity, the gospel says. We are saved by one way, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice again, the integrity of God's judgment is based on the fact, notice, that it will be by Christ Jesus. In that day when God will judge the secrets of men according to my gospel by Christ Jesus. It has to be a judgment of integrity. Why? Because the judge himself is the very embodiment of truth. May I suggest this to you? You know this very well. This judgment based on God's integrity, based according to truth, has as its judge the God of truth, the Lord Jesus. And as such, it will be a judgment without a jury. In fact, there will be no jury pool that can be tampered with. Why? Because he will be the sole arbiter on the day of judgment. It will not be a jury declaring our fate. It will be the final verdict, the final sentence of the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the quick, the living, and the dead Paul suggests in verse 3 why the judgment of God being according to truth rightly falls on those who are self-righteous. And once again it is this, that they are passing judgment. While they are passing judgment on those who are practicing certain sins, they themselves are doing what? Just the very same things. And Paul had already cited this in verses 1 and 2 where he pointed out that in so doing they what? Condemn themselves, verse 1. And Paul's point is that if our moral sensibilities, here's his line of reasoning. Paul is saying here that if our moral sensibilities are so sharp whereby we can distinguish and discern sin in the lives of others and condemn it, then what that means is this, that we automatically declare ourselves to be deserving of God's judgment. In fact, go back to what he said in chapter 1, verse 32. He says this, They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. The implication is there is this, you know it is going to lead to judgment. You are doing the very same things. Therefore, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. And in view of their condemning themselves by doing the very things which incur the wrath of God, the judgment of God rightly falls on them. The judgment of God, my friends, is marked and will be marked 
by integrity. And so with regard to the integrity of God's judgment, verse 5, notice, speaks of God's righteous judgment. His righteous judgment. In fact, Acts 17, verse 31, he will judge the world in righteousness, which is why, according to verse 6, he will render according to each one according to his works. And we have in verses 7 through 10 illustrations of how we will judge the world in righteousness. God will do what is right. Here's what he says. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. By the way, he's not advocating salvation by works. What he's suggesting here is that those who are saved will live like this. They will by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, that is to say the godless, those who make light of sin, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. What is he saying there? God is a righteous judge who will pay to each one proportionately and distributively. The certainty of God's judgment, the integrity of God's judgment, but notice thirdly, the impartiality of God's judgment. The impartiality of God's judgment. Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. What a statement. For God shows no partiality. You could write down these two things if you're taking notes. The first is this. We could state that with God, there is no two-tiered justice system. With God, there is no two-tiered justice system. With God, there isn't one standard of justice for the rich and another standard of justice for the poor. When it comes to the administration of his justice, here's a second thing to write down. Ready? When it comes to the administration of God's judgment, number one, there's no two-tier justice system. Number two, there's no sweetheart deal. There is no two-tier justice. There's no sweetheart deal. This is clearly suggested in verse 12. Look at verse 12. I'm not making this up. <laughs> For all who have sinned without the law, Paul is referring to the Gentiles here, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law, that is the Jews, will be judged by the law. What's the point Paul is making? Paul is saying here, look, regardless of who you are, whether or not you have the light, whether or not you have the revelation of God, the light of God's revelation, whether or not you have the light of God's word, you're a sinner. And being a sinner, you will one day, or one, in one way or another, you will stand before God in judgment Someday, in short, there are no special cases with God. That's what he's saying. There are no special cases. It matters not who you are, whether rich or poor, high or low, from wherever we might be, there is no partiality with God. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 teaches that as the God of God and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God is not partial and takes no bribes. Can I put it in contemporary terms? He doesn't deal with quid quo pro. Did I say it right? He doesn't deal with quid pro quo. He doesn't take bribes. Colossians 3.25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. First Peter 1 verse 17 tells us he judges impartially according to each one's deed. And as I close, we're not going to finish, but I'm going to close. 
And so except for those who look away from themselves and trust in none other, in nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ, no one gets special favor with God. There's a sense in which you could say some get special favor, you know, but here's the point. Only those who are in Christ, only those who humble themselves and turn to Christ, looking away from themselves, consider themselves to be lost, consider themselves to be wretched. God, my friend, lets no one off the hook because of who he or she might be. He has, no, he has one inflexible standard of righteousness, which all must meet if they are to find favor and acceptance with him. And as such, in the wake of his judgment, there is no appeal. His verdict will be final. Case will be closed. Once declared, his judgment will be final. It will be conclusive. The question this morning is, where will you be in the judgment? And what side of God's judgment bar will you be? Because there will be two sides. There will be the right side, the left side. On the right, he will say to those on the right, Come ye blessed of my Father, enter into the joys of eternity. Those on the left, he will say, depart from me into everlasting fire. I never knew you. Who are those people? Among those people are the self-righteous. Among those people are the religionists, the do-gooders. Those who have no need or time for Christ. If you don't know him today, you need to trust him because you need him more, far more than your next breath.